All right. Good evening once again. So good to see you guys once again. If you guys have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. We have finished chapter 1. It's pretty exciting. And we are now starting chapter 2 this evening. (coughs) We're good. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And as you guys are opening there, let's go ahead and go before the Lord one more time and ask Him to bless our time together. Father in heaven, we thank You so much for the grace that You have given to us. We thank You for salvation. We thank You for the mercy that You have given to us in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And But Father, we have escaped Your wrath. We have escaped Your judgment. We have escaped an eternity of being without You in an enjoyable way. And Father, we thank You so much for that. We have escaped the clutches of our sin and the clutches of Satan by the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, the perfect, accomplished, and complete work of Jesus on the cross and his intercession for us. So we thank you so much for Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would give our hearts and our minds understanding of what you have for us this evening and that you would be glorified by the knowledge that we are taking in. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So if you guys remember, last week, we had kind of wrapped up the idea, wrapped up the concept of looking to how the power of God can benefit us. And we saw that the Apostle Paul focused his presentation pretty much upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That as we examined the power of God, we examined His omnipotence, really. The fact that God can do whatever God wants to do. There's there's nothing that would hinder God from doing that which He desires to do, that which He wants to do. And so we see how beneficial the power of God is. We see how amazing the power of God is in creation. And we see how spectacular all of those different things are in creation, in the universe. In fact, I was even looking on uh, YouTube the other day. That's, that's where I get my science. Um, and on YouTube, they were showing these like superstructures, and it's, they're these like systems that galaxies are actually made up of. And so as you can think about like the Earth being this tiny little ball in the big Milky Way galaxy in which we are existing in, that that galaxy itself also has a system of galaxies in which it is belonging to. And you have this huge superstructure And all these galaxies are kind of moving around in the universe even as well. And so it's mind-blowing to see some of these principles and see that it was the power of God that created those things. It's an amazing thing to begin to think about that. But the Apostle Paul focused on the idea that God is powerful to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. And we, we saw some applicational value of the idea that if God is that powerful to bring somebody back from the dead, then there's nothing within my life that he is not able to work out. There's nothing in my life that he is not able to fix. And we're going to see a specific application of the power of God in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Why that's going to be so important to you that you see the power of God rising Jesus from the dead as we're going to see here in just the first three verses. And so we're going to see the importance, why it's so important to know 
and what it is that we can learn from the life that we had prior to being a Christian. And again, also recapping the entirety of chapter 1, you saw the blessings that God bestowed upon you, and every single blessing that God has given to you is primarily concerned with your salvation. It's primarily concerned with your holiness. It's primarily concerned with you living a specific way that God has outlined and that God has said you should be living. And in those blessings and all of those wonderful privileges that we've had, we saw the reality of what it was like to be purchased out of slavery, to be purchased out of living in sin. And that's the idea of being enslaved when Jesus had ransomed us from slavery to sin and brought us into a right relationship with God. So we saw how horrible that was. And then we saw the blessedness and the benefit of the power of God. There's nothing in my life that is outside the control of God. There's nothing in my life that is outside the ability of God to work everything out according to His good pleasure and for my good. All of that is is seen. And so if you'll notice then that we saw how bad sin was, we saw how bad slavery to sin was, we saw how blessed it is to be in Christ, to be purchased by Christ, and to be a recipient of the power of God in a good way. And we saw that the power of God rises Jesus from the dead. So notice how Paul is applying that specifically to us in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So read along with me in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. It says, and you were dead. Do you catch that? So, so God raised Jesus from the dead. And now he's going to hit the audience. He's going to hit you guys with a significant reality of your former life, you before Christ, that you weren't just enslaved to sin. He says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verse 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And so when you start chapter 1, when you hear the Apostle Paul saying this, you can begin to sense, you can begin to realize that there's something that God wants you to know about your former life, about where you used to be prior to becoming a Christian. And this is going to be such an important thing for us to know. It's going to be such a benefit for us to know what it was like. So you've had that foundation. God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And here is an impacting reality about you prior to Christ. You were dead. Somebody who is not currently a Christian, they are dead. And so what does it mean to be dead? Because you think about your life prior to becoming a Christian and you're thinking to yourself, I was alive. I had life in me. I was breathing. My heart was beating. I was walking around. I was making decisions. I was making choices. How can the scriptures say that I was dead prior to becoming a Christian when it's obvious that I was living? Well, we can begin to recognize that he's probably not talking about physical life versus physical death because it's specific to the idea of trespasses and sins, spiritual issues. And specific spiritual issues that relate to my relationship with God. And so it's not that I was 
physically dead. That's obviously not the emphasis. That's obviously not the meaning of what the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate here, that you were physically dead prior to salvation. He's saying you were spiritually dead. Now what's sad is the fact that maybe some Christians might actually be saying, but I was alive and I was alive in a metaphysical sense. I was alive even in some kind of a spiritual sense prior to salvation because what I was doing was enjoyable. What I was doing was satisfying. What I was doing was meaningful in these trespasses and sins. I felt alive in those concepts. But the reality is, is that the Scriptures are teaching us, God is telling us, there is no life there is no usefulness there is no satisfaction there is no true permanent enjoyment in that former life because it is spiritual deadness now the word here for dead in the greek text is the greek word necros and you may recognize that word because that's where you get the term necromancy from which is the animating of the dead right the term specifically means corpses You were spiritual corpses in your trespasses and sins. It's as if you were living spiritually in a morgue. And your life was spent spiritually decomposing. Breaking down. And you were... You were in a position where you were not attuned to the things of the spiritual realm. You were, as Jesus would say, blind. You were, as Jesus would say, walking around in darkness. That was your life. That was the life that you were experiencing prior to becoming a Christian was being a corpse in relationship to trespasses and sins. Now, when you think about those terms, when you think about those concepts, this is going to help kind of illustrate the understanding of what it means to be spiritually dead. Trespasses and sins. A trespass can be a sin in and of itself, but it's specifically an offense. When you think about if you were to go around, uh, you know, someplace around New Mexico and you see these vast places, these vast open landscapes, and you go up to a fence a lot of times and you see this no trespassing sign, Right? That's the idea. There's a sign that's posted and it says, do not cross into this area. And you in rebelliousness would say, that ain't for me. And you would jump the fence and you would cross into that area. And of course, then you would be offending whosoever land that is. Because you weren't supposed to go there. You weren't supposed to go into that area. That's the idea. Specifically, in a spiritual sense, this is violating God's standards that we should be living by. It's violating God's Standards. God has said, here are the limitations of your life. It's like being back in the Garden of Eden, and when you think about how wonderful it is to be in the Garden of Eden, to be in paradise, and to see all of the different kinds of freedoms that would ultimately exist in obedience to God. One of the things that the world is going to try to mess your mind up with is the idea that rules, regulations, These are restrictions and you have no freedom within these things. And yet in the playground of God, there are rules and boundaries and limitations, but inside that is freedom. And God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree. There are plenty of trees 
that you can be eating from. And of course, these are pre-fall trees. These are directly created from God trees. This is the epitome of organic. <laughs> these are fresh tasting trees. These are wonderful trees. Say, you need of anything. You have freedom. This is the standard that God has said to live by. Here's an enjoyment, a life that He has said. Enjoy this life. Enjoy this unhindered communion with me in this garden, in this paradise, and eat of any tree that is here. Except for this one. Many people try to say maybe this was a poisonous tree or maybe there's something specifically wrong with this tree. The reality is, is that the tree in and of itself is not wrong except for the fact that God said don't eat of it. The restrictions that God had placed upon it created an atmosphere whereby Adam and Eve needed to abide by because of the promise of judgment, the promise of death that would come upon them for eating this. The deadness that would come would be the trespassing, the, the offending God and the violating of the standards that He had set up, that He was free in His own free will to establish and set up. One of the greatest places you could ever be in the rest of your life from this moment forward, one of the greatest places that you could ever be is thinking to yourself, God has absolute freedom over my life. That is one of the greatest places you will ever be. Because you will think to yourself that if, if God is the centerpiece of my life and He has free will, He has freedom, if God is free to tell me what I should or should not be doing, and I'm going to accept that, I'm going to love that, and I'm going to live by that, you're going to do well in life. I don't mean financially, I don't mean health-wise, but I mean enjoyment of God-wise. And the ability to endure things without getting crushed, without getting broken, without getting tripped up. This is how you can have an advantage in life. Is to have that foundational position that says, whatever God's will is, let that be done. Imagine Christ upon, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane before He was going up to the cross. And He revealed to us the the seriousness of His humanity, the reality of His humanity, when He is saying, Lord, if Your will were to be to allow this cup, the cup of God's wrath, to pass from Me, then Lord, let that happen. If it were Your will, if in Your divine sovereignty, O Father, if You were to choose to allow Me to not suffer under the weight of your wrath being judged for the sins of every single one of your people, then Lord, that's what I would want your will to be done within my life. Nevertheless, let your will be done and not mine. That's Jesus. That is God. That's the second person of the Trinity acknowledging the sovereignty of the Father and saying that if you were to do something that would be in accordance with something that would be better for me to not have to experience in terms of the physical anguish that I'm about to experience, then that's exactly what I would want to happen. Yet, in your sovereignty, if it's that you want me to experience this incredibly painful, intense suffering to the moment of death, God, your will be done. 
Have you ever said that? Have you ever been in a circumstance, in a situation where you don't want to come close to a trespass? You want to do the exact opposite of a trespass? You don't want to violate God's standards? You want to love God's standards? And you want to begin to say and make that statement that, Lord, if I'm about to die, if it were Your will to save me, then let that happen. Yet, if it's Your will to allow me to die, God, I am content with whatever it is that You want. The greatest place that we can be is to express to God, Your will be done. Whatever it is. So you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Those kinds of attitudes, those kinds of concepts are absolutely impossible for somebody who's spiritually dead. To become, to, to be at a point of acknowledging that whatever God wants to do within your life, you are acknowledging that that is great, that that is good, that you would love every single minute of that. For a spiritually dead person, that's an impossibility. They won't do that. They don't want to do that. They can't do that. They're dead. But they're also dead in their sins. So this is a specific focus upon sins. This means a specific departure from doing what God declares we should or shouldn't do. The word literally means to miss the mark. It's as if you were shooting a bow and arrow at a target and the point is to try to hit it right in the bullseye, but you keep hitting it low or you keep hitting it off to the right. You keep hitting it high. You're missing the target completely even. You're missing your mark. It's like Romans 3, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There's your definition of sin. Failing to glorify God. That's the issue of sin. Which means that there is an outlined and defined purpose of your life. The reason why you've been created and then even therefore the reason why you've been saved so that God's glory would be displayed within your life. Your life has the purpose of making God famous. That's your life. That's the purpose of your life. And when you are failing to make God famous, that is sin. The very definition of sin. Now, he doesn't specifically mean that every time you sin, you're now dead. He's saying that you were dead while you were dead in your trespasses of sins. There was a continuousness of this kind of a lifestyle that existed. That's what it means to be dead in these kinds of things. So in other words, your life in every single waking moment, being dead in your trespasses and sins, is a life whereby you continuously bail on the standards of God. You continuously fail to make God famous. Those are the standard aspects that make up the entirety and the totality of your life. That's what it's like to be dead. It's not that you wouldn't do something that would be morally good. But even an atheist could build an orphanage and still have not done anything to make God famous. It's a continual participation, blatant and open disregard for the commandments of God, for the will of God, and for the ability to make God famous within your life. That's a continuous lifestyle. That's what it's like 
to be dead in your trespasses and sins. There's a distinct inability that exists. There is a lack of the right kind of desire and there's a presence of the wrong kind of desire. My thoughts as a spiritually dead person would be bent towards evil continually. And I would have no ability to ultimately do anything that is pleasing unto God. It's not that you would live as bad as you could possibly live, though if God were to restrain His grace from the entirety of the world, that's exactly what you would see. Is people living for as extremely bad as they could possibly be. But in the reality of the lives that we see in this world, it's not as though they are as terrible as they could possibly be. The reality is, being spiritually dead, is that I would not desire to do anything pleasing unto the Lord, nor would I have the ability to even do so if I wanted to. Being spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Verse 2 even begins to tell us that the summary of the former life was walking around in spiritual deadness. Walking around in what we could even say would be spiritual uselessness. The real walking dead that actually exists are entirely everyone who is not a believer. I was thinking of trying to make that either a joke about the series, The Walking Dead, or thinking about how absolutely haunting that is, that there is a reality that walking dead actually exists. To be walking around without Christ, without salvation, is a walking spiritual corpse. In other words, more specifically, it is somebody who is continually participating in things that are offensive unto God. Now here's some Here's some things that we can begin to kind of take away from examining the former life. That's what this is. For those of you that have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, this is exactly what this is to you, the former life. You were these things. Next week, we're going to hear the most resounding sentence, the sentence heard round the world, one of the most crucial and pivotal sentences in Ephesians. That when we see you were dead in your trespasses of sins, you were all of these negative and horrific things, and then we would get into verse 4, but God. Which brings about so much reason to thank Him, so much reason to praise Him, so much reason to bow down, that when you begin to be impressed and begin to see these things be impacted by the gravity of how terrible this former life actually was, that when you see God stepping in and intervening, you realize He is the greatest being you could ever love. Now, as if it wasn't bad enough, as if the former life wasn't as terrible as it could be in the reality of existing as spiritually dead individuals, Walking around in this deadness, walking around in this spiritual deadness in trespasses and sins. Notice what verse 2 said again. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You're worldly. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. 
Many scholars, many theologians, and I would have to even agree that the, the prince of the power of the air here is most likely a reference to Satan. But even if it's not specifically a reference to Satan, it's at least a reference to somebody who is mentioned as a ruler, and this ruler has a specific dominion, and it doesn't mean that if he's the prince of the power of the air that all kinds of airplanes are going to be messed up. It's not the idea here. Or if you ever went skydiving, be careful because you're in the domain of the prince of the power of the air. Or any weird things like that. This is the idea that there is a significant jurisdiction that is granted to this prince, and this prince's jurisdiction is working within the sons of disobedience, those who are spiritually dead. So again, even if it's not Satan himself, which I think that it actually is, even if it's not Satan himself, this is an individual that is still a tyrannical individual that is not worth being under the rule of. So I'm going to go ahead and kind of emphasize that idea. I'm going to focus more upon the reality that this is most likely Satan himself. And uh, Ephesians 6.12 will kind of bring about that reality maybe even more given who Satan actually is. And maybe that's even more specifically of what Prince of the Power of the Air would refer to. The idea that uh, Ephesians 6.12 refers to spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So here's what makes this so significantly, so significantly terrible. As if it wasn't bad enough that there's spiritual deadness, but now there is also Satanism. Now there's also a Satanicness that's associated with it. Now there's also that reality that even Jesus had said to the Pharisees, you're of your father the devil. You're under a specific influence. You're under a specific rule of Satan himself. Now you hear oftentimes of so many different things within social media, within the media itself, where you see like these pictures of like a goat-headed dude with horns and he's like bringing these little children in and there's that pentagram symbol behind him and, and everybody's in an uproar about how satanic this image actually is and it's being, I forget who's promoting it, but you see something like that and you go, wow, that's demonic. And then of course the reality is, is that when you see sin, that's actually what the real demonicism is. The greatest form of Satanism that could exist within the world is sinning. Even examine it in Revelation 2.24 when it specifically talks about sexual sin itself. It says in Revelation 2.24, But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, the teaching of sexual sin, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. you imagine the impact of what Jesus is saying? Jesus is pronouncing to the church at Thyatira? You have this issue of fornication. You have this issue of sexual sin going on among you. And what you guys are really doing and participating in sexual sin specifically is you are learning the deep things of Satan. You're sitting at Satan University majoring in Satanism. You're ineffective because of deadness. You're ruled 
by Satan. And if these things are not as bad as they could possibly be, that I am existing in a form of Satanism, when it becomes the idea of me sinning, if that's not simply the issue of being spiritually dead in my trespasses and sins, you'll notice in verse 3 that he says that we are children of wrath, even as the rest. The singular worst place to be in the entirety of history is in deadness to sin. Now again, as horrible of an image as this is painting of the former life, bear significantly in your mind that is the former life. I've been saved from that by Christ. But in a careful examination of these things of the former life, it's important to get this image, to get this picture burned and ingrained within your mind. That when you see the spiritual corpseness and the spiritual deadness of your sins, and that you've been saved from that, you've been given spiritual life, you've been freed from the dominion of Satan, you've been freed from the principalities and the powers and all of these different satanic and demonic realms. You've been freed from those and you've been freed from the wrath of God specifically even. How futile, how horrible, how disgusting would it be to be brought up out of the morgue, to be brought up out of these tombs, to be brought out of those things and be brought back into this significant right relationship with God. And then to start walking back to the morgue and you're starting to put your foot back into the tomb. That's what it's really like when we as Christians begin to sin. It's as if We cannot stand anymore the idea of being alive. We crave then this death. And so we would even do that horrific reality of putting ourselves within a wooden box of sin and burying ourselves alive. That's exactly what happens in a spiritual sense. Every single time we sin. Maybe not specifically or exactly those kinds of things. Those are just illustrations, but think about the reality of what you've been saved from and how absolutely stupid and pointless it is to try to go back into those things. It's exactly what it was like when children of Israel were brought up out of Egypt. You guys all remember the story of Exodus? And you have these some 1.2 million people brought up out of bondage, out of slavery. I mean, how many of you guys think about the idea of going into Egyptian slavery, having a slave driver over you, you don't have the the ability to have breaks, you don't have the ability to take an hour lunch or even a 30-minute lunch break, run over to your favorite fast food place, McDonald's or Wendy's or something like that, get yourself a wonderfully refreshing and very unhealthy meal, to begin to eat and then you go right back to work and the slave driver is somebody who walks right up to you and is like, hey man, or woman, how was, how was your lunch break? Was that great? Did you enjoy going over to Egyptian McDonald's and getting yourself all kinds of wonderful food? 
Did you love every minute of that? Was that great? Well, why don't you come back? And you know what? Actually, take it easy. You've been working like six days this week. Go ahead and take a day off. It's fine. Don't even sweat it. Now, being in a moment where actually if you stopped in any, any iota of time and a slave driver saw that, you were put right back to work. You, you are a slave. You are entirely not free to do whatever you would like to do. And what's even worse, you're in the, the, the 14th century B.C., so you can't even go home and watch TV to unwind. No, we wouldn't, wouldn't sign up for that. When we see the pictures of how horrible it is, the people of God were crying out to God. The cry to God got so great that God said to himself that he had to step in, he had to intervene, he remembered his covenant, and he had to do something about this. And he laid low the greatest civilization of the known world in that day and time in order to save his people from some of the worst slavery that they could have ever possibly have experienced for 400 some odd years. And imagine how mystifying, how magical, how amazing that that would be that you see God stepping in and intervening and showing all of these signs and wonders. They knew that God was with them even when Moses had just simply come and threw down his staff for the people first. They knew that God was with them. And then they saw all of these plagues. They knew that God was with them. And then God brought them out into the wilderness and Pharaoh's army, the army of Amun-Ra, the greatest military force of the known world, and Pharaoh himself is pressing in upon them. And yet they saw that mighty and majestic army laid low by God in the Red Sea. They're even being led by God, by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day. They're even brought to this wonderful place where they have delicious spring water and dates to be able to eat. Everything is going great. And they're even singing and praising and worshiping God. And this could be exactly our lifestyle within a youth group where we're beginning to see the gloriousness of God amongst a people of God. But when things kind of get a little tough, when things start to get harder, and the people begin to complain, it is mind-numbing and mind-boggling to hear the words, would we have rather have died in Egypt than to be out here in the wilderness with God? That's what apostasy looks like. And to a lesser degree and to a smaller degree, that can be exactly what begins to happen to us when we see and experience salvation being brought up out of slavery to sin, being brought into a right relationship with God, being with God. You know what made the Garden of Eden so great? It wasn't because of all the fresh fruit to eat. It wasn't because of just wonderful paradise to live in. It's because God was there. That's what made the Garden of Eden so great. And you as a Christian have exactly what made the Garden of Eden, what made paradise so great. You have the Holy Spirit living with you. You have God with you. To experience that, to know that, to live that, and then to go over here and look back to Egypt, look back to slavery, look back upon what literally was the known world in that day and time, to look upon the world that we live in today and say, man, I really miss that. 
Don't miss sin. Don't miss those things of the former life. And that's what's so therapeutic about reading these three verses here is because when you really look back upon the former life as how God looks at it, as how God understands it to be, as how it actually, truly, really is, then there is so much motivation to begin to move forward. It's going to be the most difficult thing that you could do to move forward in the Christian life when you keep looking back upon those sins. You've been granted freedom. You've been granted life. This old life that we see here, that teaches us how bad things used to actually be. There's even a a good motivation that we can see within this text to begin to preach the gospel to those around us that that we know don't love God, that are not Christians, because they're existing in this very state. They're existing in this very condition. Being ruled by Satan, being under God's wrath. And then, of course, when you really begin to examine this old life, again, this therapeutic understanding of what the old life actually is, you get hope for the current life now. You get hope for the current life now. No matter how bad now actually is, it will never, ever, this moment until eternity future, it will never ever be as bad as being dead in your trespasses and sins. Whatever conflict that you're having with your parents, whatever conflict you're having in school, whatever issues that you're experiencing, whatever temptation is coming that's bothering you, whatever suffering that you're going through, no matter what it is, it will never be as bad as being dead in your trespasses and sins. And then, of course, the old life can teach us to have hope for the future life. It will only, always, ever get better. It may not be that the circumstances are going to change completely. In fact, the circumstances are probably actually going to get worse. Things within your life are probably going to get worse. And believe me, it actually is the best place that you can be to be suffering. When you're experiencing moments of peace and there's absolutely nothing going wrong within your life, that's when you need to actually ask what actually is going wrong right now. Because it is the life of a Christian to be experiencing things that are difficult. But how it gets better is because we change as we go through this. You're not just simply saved out of these things, but you're on the track to something that is ultimately better being more and more like Jesus Christ, the one who prayed on Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done, which we defined earlier as being the greatest place that you could ever possibly be. Lord, you are free to do whatever you want in my life. And with that, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, we love you, we praise you. Lord God, we just... We stand horrified at the lives that we used to be in. And we stand so grateful at the life that you have given to us now. God, we pray that you would instruct us, that you would comfort us, that you would encourage us, that what you have given to us is so wonderful. 
holiness. Being separated out of sin, out of the world, that we would still live in the world. And being dedicated unto you for service and satisfaction. So Lord, we pray that you would keep reminding us of these truths. And that, Father, you would make us anxiously await next week where we hear the reversal of our fortunes, where we see you step in mightily. And we thank you for having done that already within our lives. We thank you for the opportunity that we look forward to to be refreshed and reminded of that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.